0: And without further ado, our guest speaker, Sandra Unger.
1: Thanks. Thanks, Dave. Good to be back. I am Sandra Unger. I'm the Covenant Community Pastor here, and I work with small groups and um, people who really want to live missionally and reach out into our neighborhoods. I also have a little community I'm part of on the east side of St. Paul called The Lift. Um, Some of you may have heard of that, but I'm really glad to be back with you here this morning. Let's pray. God, thanks for an opportunity to step outside of our, uh, the hustle of our daily lives and to worship you and to be with you and to be with others who love you. I just pray that this time would be a time of hearing from you, that our hearts would be open and that you would speak to us and that we would have the courage to listen. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, 50 years ago, one of my heroes, Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., um, cast a vision for what he called the beloved community. And it's just an absolute beautiful vision that has yet to be fulfilled. The beloved community occurs when people from different backgrounds, different ethnicities, different socioeconomics come together and join in true unity. And it's not because of a political agenda, it's not because of an economic agenda, it's not because of a human rights agenda, it's because of love. He calls us to unity in this beloved community for the sake of love, for the sake of the vision that Jesus cast. And he knew then and we know now that it's not an easy thing to realize. This is what MLK said in 1958. Desegregation will break down legal barriers and bring men together physically. But something must happen so as to touch the hearts and souls of men that they will come together not because the law says it, but because it is natural and right so the people who inhabit MLK's beloved community are people whose pasts have often come in terrible conflict with one another. And we see this in the history of our country. People in need of reconciliation. People who've begun to realize that if one person is the victim of oppression or poverty, then all of humanity suffers. People who recognize that when people in financial poverty are freed, then people in wealth are freed from other kinds of poverty. People who decide to forgive And to reach across the great divide when it would be easier not to. And lest you think these are the words and this is the vision of a left-wing, flawed human being. I want to take a look at what the Bible has to say about it. Because you can't get away from it. Old Testament prophetic books. All through, this is what the prophets were hammering to the nation of Israel. You have sold the needy for a pair of sandals. In the book of Amos, let justice roll down like waters, and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. Israel was disappointing God and was breaking covenant with him because he was not, they were not doing what he had called them to do. And then in the New Testament, we find in the Gospels, Luke 4, Jesus said, I have come to bring good news to the poor, the oppressed, the sick, The message, the gospel, is good news when it's good news to the poor. In the book of Acts, we actually see the beginnings of this church founded on on Jesus' words, where everyone shared all their possessions in common. You can find this at the end of Acts 2 and the end of Acts 4. There were no needy persons. People sold what they had and shared it freely with one another. And as a result, people were drawn into this radical community. And this is the vision that we still carry today. And this is the vision that aligns with the beloved community, that MLK continued to cast a vision for. In John 17, verses 20 through 23, Jesus prays a prayer. This is right before his um, crucifixion. And he's praying for his followers and he prays a radical vision that I think sometimes escapes us. Take a look at John 17. I ask not only on behalf of these, but also on behalf of those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one as you father are in me and I am in you may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me the glory that you have given me I have given up them so that they may be one as we are one I in them and you and me that they may become completely one so that the world may know that you have sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me you think he wants us to be one he says it like five times in there may they be one But here's the really radical part of it. The oneness that he's praying for is a oneness that's rooted in the nature of the Godhead, of the Trinitarian God that we serve. May they be one, Father, as you and I are one. He's praying that we would have the kind of oneness that's found in the Trinity. This is a radical unity. In 2 Corinthians 5, we are given the ministry of reconciliation. And it's not reconciliation, again, for a political or economic agenda. This is a reconciliation because this is what it means to be human. This is what it means to be whole. This is what Jesus is calling us to. And so today I wanna to share just a little slice of my story of taking the first steps toward realizing a beloved community. For those of you who don't know anything about my story, I uh, will just tell you a two-second version. We, my family moved uh, into St. Paul from the suburbs in 2003 because we believed that God had called us to align ourselves more closely with people who did not have their basic needs met. And when we moved in, we didn't know what we didn't know, which was basically almost everything that one should know before tackling something like this. So we moved in, they called me the happy white lady, Um, and we started meeting our neighbors, saying hey across the alley, and we got to know some really cool people who were very patient and who explained to us how this new neighborhood worked and helped us learn what we didn't know And many of these uh, neighbors that we met have become very close friends, and some have become like family to us. And one of our new family members um, from our journey these last few years is named Ernest Johnson, and he has agreed today to share his story with us. So take a look on the screens and meet my friend, Ernest.
2: I was born in Missouri, came to Minnesota at a young age, lived on the west side, down by the railroad track. You know, we had to go outside to the odd house. Moving ahead, we went to we moved to uh, up on St. Alban's and St. Anthony. That's when I got my dog, Domino. I got Domino, he was six weeks old, my friend. And my mom she drank, you know, and it wasn't a happy place. Eventually, she ended up in the hospital, and they said that she was going to be out on a Sunday and Saturday night the police came to the door knocked on the door and he says "Uh, Is this a Johnson residence? I said yeah. I said your mother named Cleo? I said yeah, she's dead The owner who we were paying the rent to told us we had to move and the city came and got my dog You know And told us we had to leave Sleeping in cars, box. This House of Nations is a house where different people live black people, white people, Indians, Mexicans, so we called it the House of Nations. Kitty Corner was uh, Bud Goldberg's liquor store, and it was a bar and a pool hall. So I asked him if I could, you know, do something to make a couple dollars. He said, Yeah, I could. Keep bringing up the beer when they needed it, and he'd give me a couple dollars. And he told me about this there was a place down the street on St. Anthony. I could pay a dollar a night to stay. And so uh, I paid a dollar, and it was just a little small, little, enough for a bed. My brother would come by every night, he stopped at the submarine place and get a submarine and stop by and see how I was doing and then six months later he got stabbed up in the apartment guy was looking for me came my brother opened the door and he stabbed him then I got arrested for snatching the purse and they put me in jail and I said to myself this is not a bad place because I said that because it was you know, it was warm, it wasn't cold, and I got something to eat. And I got out and was gallivanting about doing, you know, and sleeping here, sleeping there, sleeping there, stealing this, stealing that. Just getting high, just, I didn't know what else to do. I had no other sense of direction. And I, you know, I wonder how people would. People going into these warm houses, driving around in their cars. I don't know how to to do this stuff, you know. I just didn't understand. I never was taught how to do that. I had the job it was cleaning. I had to clean maintenance first thing in the morning before Dayton's open. And one of my responsibilities was to clean all the outside windows. We're talking Dayton's in downtown Minneapolis. A lot of windows. So... I would empty my trash, all the locations, take the trash, dump it. Then I'd go up to Liz Claiborne department because that's where all the expensive real expensive stuff was. And I would like, whoa, look it out. This stuff costs a lot of money. So I would fill my cart, plastic bag, just stuff it with stuff. And I'd go past the security guard and he said, How you doing, Ernest? Oh, I'm fine. I'm just going out here and clean these windows. And then I go stash my bag of goodies. It just went on for a good while, until loss prevention was realizing a lot of stuff is missing. Maybe we need to keep an eye on this guy going up in the morning. And sure enough, I got caught. And I spent time in Kentucky, Kansas, Missouri, Minnesota, Told about 23 years. I went to Stillwater, got out of Stillwater, and they told me I had to go to, to a, a halfway house, transitional housing, and then they told me part of my release plan is I have to have a place to live. I asked, well, how do you do that? And they says, well, you just you get an ad in the paper and you go answer the ad and ask if you can rent a place. Asked who? The people who are renting it. Okay. So I, that's what I did. And another stipulation, you had to have a phone. So I went Salvation Army. I got a phone, and I had a phone. But you had it had to work. Oh, so I asked, how do you do that? Now I'm 42. Okay. <laughs> so I So how you do that? Well, you call the phone company and tell them you want service at this address. Oh. I went to the Salvation Army, Goodwill they called it, and I got me a black and white TV. And I had to turn it up all the way, volume all the way up, just to barely hear it. And I would lay on the floor next to the phone and stare at this black and white TV to go to work. I didn't have no silverware, no pots and pans or plates or nothing. I was never poor. Poor is not a word I can identify with i was I was broke, that's for sure, but poor, never, but I have my own apartment. I have my own apartment.
1: Well, the way the world is set up, Ernest and I should not even know each other. Greg talked last week about systemic evils in our society, um, systems and things that are just sort of the way things function today and a lot of those have been set up just to make sure that my path when I was a suburbanite and Ernest's path would not cross. So the way that freeway, freeways, neighborhood shopping, all that's set up so that we are not going to be uh, in the same place at the same time. And as you'll see from my story, that would have been a huge loss to me. Um, Ernest told me his story, an extended version, shortly after we met. And I um, just cried. I cried about um, Domino because Ernest was just about 17 or so when his mom died, and so the city was concerned enough to go take the dog away, but nobody did anything with Ernest, and he was left on his own. I cried when he talked about that prison wasn't really a bad place, because at least he had three meals and a roof over his head. And um, I didn't know what to do with all this. Now, I will tell you that I'm still hearing parts of Ernest's story that are a little funnier, Um, We taught the group leaders for Compassion by Command together. We did the training. And during that training, Ernest was talking about what he calls hustling. And I don't want to know what all is involved in hustling. I've heard enough. But he did mention something about being a dental assistant. And I said, wait, excuse me. I haven't heard this part. You are not trained as a dental assistant. He said, oh, you just tell them what they want to hear in the interview. So... (laughs) If anybody needs any bridge work, uh, fillings, Ernest will be available after the service today. But sort of the root of the story, in spite of the sort of character side of Ernest, is very sad. And so when I met him, like many activist, well-off suburban people, I decided that I need to go to work right away and fix Ernest's life. I needed to help him. What, what could I do? What did he need? And he said, well, I don't need your pity, but, you know, maybe we could be friends. And so I thought, well, maybe we can. But the problem was that Ernest didn't see himself as poor. So you heard that in the video. So here I am. I moved in to help the poor people. I moved in so that I could make a difference in the lives of the poor people. And here the first poor person that I got to know didn't even know he was poor. He didn't know all of the wonderful things that I had to offer him if he would just be a poor person. LAUGHTER Well, over the next few months, Ernest sort of tolerated me, and uh, he let me ask dumb questions and and say dumb things a lot, but he just hung out with us. He hung out with our family, got to know my friends, I got to know his friends, and he helped us understand the neighborhood that we were living in. And he really seemed comfortable just playing the role of Ernest, not Ernest the ex-con, Ernest the ex-this, Ernest the... Uh, whatever, Ernest the poor person. He was just okay without having the extra labels. And the question for me at the time was, am I okay with Ernest as just Ernest? Or do I need him to have some extra labels so that I can be in control, so that I can have more power in this relationship than Ernest has? And that's really the question of society. Because society is only comfortable with relationships, especially between people like Ernest and me, if it's defined. So I can be Ernest pastor, I can be his parole officer, I can be his social worker, I can be his caseworker. But what if I'm just friends with Ernest? Society isn't set up to handle that sort of relationship. It's not one of the options. And so we've been on a journey these last six years to say, what does it look like to just be friends, to just be in community with one another? And the great thing about Ernest is that he just refuses to play whatever role that society puts out there for him You know, if they say, you can't be a dental assistant, well, then he's a dental assistant. If they say, you're poor, he says, no, I'm just broke. Um, He's just Ernest. And so today I want to share with you um, some of many, many lessons that I have learned from Ernest. And I want to share with you the title of this message, which is so exciting to me, because the title is The Importance of Knowing (laughs) Ernest. Sometimes it all just comes together. So... um, the first thing that I really learned from Ernest is that my way of seeing the world is just and only that. It's my way of seeing the world. And so Ernest's gonna talk a little bit about some of his experience and you'll see what I'm talking about.
2: I remember my first checking account.
1: Yeah, I think you've told me this story before. Yeah, but. So
2: I go to Wells Fargo and I open up a checking account. I put $200 in a checking account. Then in the mail I got this box and it had all these
1: checks. Mhm. That's how it works. And, well, I don't know, this
2: is my first time ever having a checking account. So, I was writing checks, writing checks and all these overdrafts and, and they says,
1: well, you need you need to
2: have money in the bank to write the check. I said, then what you send me all these checks for? I thought if they send you checks, that's what you're supposed to do. So they
1: send you like a hundred checks, and, and you, s- you were just, just writing them.
2: They, they got
1: my name out of the mine. Okay, so so how's the bank checking account working? For oh you no, know?
2: I they they told me no way, we don't want. They your, kicked
1: you out of the bank.
2: They kicked my business out of the bank.
1: How do you how do you pay your bills?
2: Money order. Nah, no checking accounts, no.
1: Do you know I've never in my life gotten a money order?
2: You've never? <laughs> I
1: don't even know where you would go to do that. <laughs> but I, I do know the part about how you can't keep writing checks. So I think we were schooled a little differently. About yeah, money.
2: see, but money orders only cost me 56, 59 cents. Oh. A checking account. It
1: costs but, you a lot in overdraft fees. Yeah, yes.
2: if you overdraft on that checking account, boy, you're in trouble.
1: So you went through the homeowner classes yep. for like six weeks.
2: Sure did. And then at the end, yeah. I said,
1: so are you gonna buy a house? No. Yeah, that's what you said. No. And I said, why aren't you gonna buy a house?
2: I wanted to learn what the process was in owning a home so I could understand.
1: But you didn't wanna be tied down by actually owning a
2: home. I don't wanna be tied down owning a home. I don't let, they, they, they look nice, but there's a lot of responsibilities. Have to cut the grass. and Mow the lawn and fix the windows if they break. Put a new roof on it. I just rent.
1: So it's kind of like a sitcom where I got more checks. I must have more money. It's just amazing to me. Uh, before I forget, I want to mention that we're doing a budgeting at the poverty line simulation, and you're all welcome to come. You need to sign up at the hub. Uh, today at 1.30 and then uh, Tuesday and Wednesday at 7. And this is an opportunity to sort of, uh, for those of you maybe who haven't experienced this, to say, what does it look like to be a family of five living at the poverty line? How do we make it work um, over the course of a month? And how do we pay all our bills? And it's, it's sort of a game, but I've been through it a couple times. It's, it's really, really educational. And some of you have been there. Ernest came and went through this with our staff a couple of months ago and he said yep that's pretty much how it feels so we have an earnest endorsement on the budgeting at the poverty line so sign up at the hub if you can do that it's just a great educational experience to understand something that may be new to some of us so I want to explain a concept from the field of sociology this may be new to some of you it may not be and I'm just going to keep it extremely simple but the concept is called the social construction of reality Um, And this is the idea that together, people form societies and they create the rules by which these societies are going to operate. And then within that larger society, there are smaller groups that have different rules like your family about how you're going to operate. And um, these rules are not um, things that are required by nature or they they don't define what it means to be human. So for example, if you showed up at a, a funeral wearing a sequined white dress okay that's just not appropriate and we all know that although really couldn't there have been another society where that was appropriate and if you want to put your kid in school they're generally gonna be five or six years old when they start if you want to work full-time it's generally gonna be 40 hours there's sort of just these social conventions that we agree on and then there's um, social conventions that are different from ours all over the world. If you go over to Europe, if you go over to Uganda, if you go over to the Middle East, you're going to find all different rules about schooling, about clothing, about religion. And if you go back 100 years, 200 years, 300 years, um, you're going to find different rules all over the place as well. So it's the idea that we sort of invent a lot of what we assume as normal and natural. It's just invented by society and by how we speak with one another and how we live together. And so these things are not core to what it means to be human, but they're invisible to us as a general rule, and so they create a lot of conflict. So on a a micro level, you know how you come together, you get married to somebody, and then you find out that one family thinks you open a gift on Christmas Eve, and one family... Okay, and then there's huge conflict, because to me, you cannot open a gift on Christmas Eve. I'm sorry, that's just not the way the universe is created. And we hold these things very tightly, and we're usually utterly unaware of them. So a very important rule of the society I was raised in was that you're not really an adult until you have a checking account and you own a home. And so I dragged this baggage with me onto the east side of St. Paul. And I thought, okay, we gotta, we got to get this happening here. People need to understand why it's important to own a home. So we had homeowner classes, and as Ernest mentioned, he went through them because he just wondered how you own a home. And then at the end, I said, okay, well, are you ready to buy a home? And he said, why would I want to own a home? And I said, well, duh, don't you know that if you invest... This was back a while. Don't you know that if you invest in a home, you're going to make money? Don't you know the security that provides? And all that did was tap into a deeper level of a social construction which says that in my world, you own a home because money is really important and because security is really important. And that's not the world that Ernest came from and there's no reason for me to impose these things on Ernest. And so I've learned from him that um, I needed to step back a little bit and realize that the way I see things isn't necessarily the way they are. The way I see things is not the way they are. Another way to say that is my map is not the territory. So I've created a map in my head. doesn't necessarily line up with what really is. And if we're not aware of those things, then we bump into one another. And this is why society is so scary right now for some of us. We want to stay in our own little enclaves while everyone's playing by the same rules. Everyone has the same map. Because in our society today, we have people coming from all over the world and landing here in the United States different religious views, different holidays, different views of time, different views of dress, different rules for their society, and we're bumping into each other all the time. And I experienced just a little bit of that bump moving in when Ernest and I talked about the homeowner classes. And I had my map that said, well, of course you'd want to own a home, let's get it happening. And he had his map that says, why on earth would you want to own a home? And what often happens is we bump into people like that and we both say, I don't get that person, and you leave. But what Ernest and I have done over the last six years is continue to bump into those and say, okay, let's talk about what's going on. What's your assumption? What's my assumption? And you grow and you learn when you recognize that your map is not the territory. Ernest has forced me to set aside my middle-class assumptions and see things a different way. Another learning. If a relationship is not reciprocal, that is, it goes both ways, then it's not really a relationship. Here's Ernest talking about uh, his best friend, the car. The car.
2: I had a '84 Buick Park Avenue, and it was. It looked good. It had 587,000 miles. That's a half a million miles. <laughs> and you put most of those on driving around the yes, side. Yes, I did. I yeah. put all them miles on, and everybody knew me. And they say, hey, here's pops. Here he comes with the big pops. Old. Here's pops. Hey pops, what's up? Hey, hey." and, um, and then it. T- Died.
1: Yeah, and then I remember at that point we'd been hanging out for a few years. Yeah, And so a bunch of us said, oh, Ernest got to get a, well, to help happened, get a car.
2: Well what happened was they didn't know, I didn't know they were talking about it. I just said I need to use the van and get the lift on the side of it. What they mean? What's that? You go around and give people lifts? <laughs>
1: Well, you do. <laughs> <Yeah>. so, <laughs> so we decided, well, we got to help Ernest get a car. And so we were kind of checking around some connections, and we ended up with a...
2: 99 Pontiac Sunfire. And how this went down is, I had a phone call. Uh, they needed the van. They said, oh, you got to come down here and get this uh, the title for this car. Said, what car? And I looked out the window, and I said, oh okay. Ooh.
1: Did you like the hail damage part? It, it had all these
2: little hail damages but you know I I got in it and it was like oh my goodness this thing is so small.
1: And it gets good gas mileage.
2: Excellent gas mileage but I was just wondering if if I was going to be able to drive it would it tip over. It's so small. <laughs> I'm used to driving it you know a Buick Park Avenue. I like big cars. This is Car. So you
1: weren't really sure how much we'd really helped you at that point? <laughs> yeah,
2: I'm like, but but you know, and all it cost me was to get the title transferred? Yeah, I said, then I looked and I got all this paperwork from the services that was done on the car. So I took it to a, a guy I know who was a mechanic and he looked over and he said, Oh my goodness gracious, this is almost a brand new car you got here.
1: So... Here's what I mean by reciprocity. Ernest got a car out of this relationship. And um, this is appropriate for, for my society. He says, oh, that's the appropriate thing. The happy white lady should be helping, uh, you know, the ex-con get a car. We applaud you. That's really Marvy. Um, but when I'm talking about reciprocity, that means things are going both ways. So what do I get out of the relationship? And I get some great things like Ernest helps me understand the neighborhood. I get donuts on a lot of Saturday mornings. Ernest stops by with donuts. Ernest drives by her house and checks on it when we're on vacation. But the really significant thing is that Ernest is a person who doesn't live an overcommitted over busy life. Ernest is available uh, every time I call him, he's he's there. Every time I say, "Hey, could you help us with this? Could you answer this question? Could you pick up this kid who's who's stranded?" He's there immediately. And so he lives that kind of life. And what he's started to do, well, what he's annoyingly done for five years is continue to speak into overcommitment, saying, why are you doing all this? Why are you running around like a chicken with your head cut off? Why don't you just say no? Why don't you just stay home once in a while? What's your problem? It's really annoying. Um, starting to sink in. And he goes on and on and on. And so the question is, how many people in this room could probably hook Ernest up with a 10-year-old car with hail damage? You know, a lot of you could do a lot better, but how many people do I have in my life who are really committed to not being overcommitted, to being fully present, to being available to their friends, and who is going to love me in spite of my overcommitment and continue to speak into it? See, the measurable part is the car. The part that society says, yeah, that's how it's supposed to work is the car. But the true thing that's going on is that the relationship and the resources are flowing more toward me than away from me, and I want to recognize it and say, yep, that's the way it's supposed to be. Really important lesson that I've learned from Ernest. And our relationship is reciprocal. It goes both ways. Next thing, third thing I learned from Ernest is that God works in mysterious ways. I recognize that as a cliche, but I think you'll understand why I couldn't do any better when you see what Ernest is talking about here.
2: I remember when I was selling drugs. And I, yeah, and I had, I would walk or ride around and I'd have maybe Three or four thousand dollars in hundred-dollar bills, and I'd see somebody going down the street with their kids with the stroller, and and I just pull over and put three, four hundred dollars in the kids. Here, go get them some candy, would you? And jump on my car. Candy? Uh, four hundred dollars to get some
1: candy? Just give them candy. something.
2: <laughs> you know, I'd say that because you know I wanted to think maybe it was a couple dollars, yeah. and then when I drive off, I look through the mirror. And, They'd open it up and they're like, whoa, you know, they, I they got grocery money. I'll leave the house and I'm going to, we say I'm going to Rainbow to get me something. Well,
1: you're at Rainbow buying Snickers bars almost every yeah, day. Yeah,
2: well, but I buy other Snickers. stuff. I only buy what I can use today. I don't buy a bunch of groceries.
1: So tell about the voices in your head, again.
2: No, it's not voices in my head. What is it? It's it's a, a voice saying, uh, if I, I generally have to turn left to go down rainbow and they say uh, go up a couple blocks and then take a right. Mm-hmm. I'm like I, and I'll do that <clears throat> and then when I find myself, I find myself in a situation where somebody needs some help and I'm like and I'll say thank you Lord.
1: Like tell me who who needs help. Well
2: for instance there was one time I, I was going down arcade going to rainbow and it says, no, go on down into the, to Phelan Boulevard and take a right. So I got down and took a, t- take a right and this, this Asian lady and her husband were sitting in their van. And there was snow and they didn't know how to get out. They felt that they were stuck. Huh. And people were driving past them and I'm like, I don't know why nobody helped these people. So I pulled over. And I explained to him the reason why he couldn't get out is because he had his wheel turned into the curb. And he was just spinning. And he didn't know. So I just told him to straighten his wheels out. And he straightened his wheels out and he pulled out. And they were the happiest people I've ever seen. You know. And and they may not have. Uh, you know. I know for a fact to this day they can say. I don't know who that nice man was. But. He sure helped us, and that's all. It seems like I end up every place. I end up somewhere, and somebody is in need of help.
1: Like little kids, I know you've helped little uh, kids find their parents, and little, people locked out of their cars.
2: People lost. You or, help help
1: little old ladies cross the street too.
2: Uh I don't need. Well, because I don't help old ladies across the street because I don't want to. Scare them. (laughs) You know, you don't just get out of your cars and help somebody across the street. Especially a
1: little old lady.
2: Yeah, what do you want? Why are you helping me? I don't need your help going across the street. You know, I would need your help if I fell down.
1: You'll help anybody except little old lady. No, I
2: help (laughs) Knock it off.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Woo! So... What do you even say about that? Who who ever heard of drug dealers giving out hundreds of dollars to help help people with groceries? Um, But I think the bigger deal is that Ernest, he does have at least one voice in his head. I'm not sure how many others. And he really does. He's out in the neighborhood all the time. He's a minister on the east side. Now, when I moved here and I met Ernest, I didn't think, oh, good. I've met another minister on the east side of St. Paul. But I think from God's perspective, he was saying, hey, Ernest is doing some cool things on the east side. Um, You know, Sandra wants to move on the east side. This would be a great team. But with my sort of categories, that's not how I saw it. But Ernest is always there. He drives around the neighborhood. He's at the grocery store buying Snickers like 45 times a day. And people know where he is and he meets needs. And people see him as a minister. And so he helped me get out of sort of my categories that said, you know, this is what a minister is. And this is what a poor person is. And they don't have a lot to do with each other. And that's just ridiculous. Uh, The next thing I learned is that hanging out and really being present with people is all there really is. Um, It's not about ministering to people, it's about being with people. And so I come with my story, which includes brokenness and poverty of some kinds, and Ernest comes with his story, and we tell each other stories, and we get to know each other, and then there's times in my story where I need help, and there's times in his story where he needs help. And it's not about a crisis, and now we have to be there. It's just about our lives intersecting, and just being real with each other. So take a look at Ernest talking about this.
2: You know, I can just come by and hang out.
1: Yeah. And that's, I think the hanging out (laughs) part is the important part.
2: Well, yeah, you know, come and eat. I have one favorite chair in this whole house. And that everybody who lives here knows that's my chair.
1: Yes. Ernest's chair,
2: and you're standing, and the man with the camera is standing right behind. <laughs> How dare
1: he? <laughs> How
2: dare you? <laughs> we there for each other,
1: right? And, it, and that we, when it's good, when it's bad, and when you have a car problem, and I'm too busy, and I'm stressed, and I got, and I'm afraid, or whatever. Yeah, we're just there.
2: We're there for each other. So
1: it's it's not just, uh oh, no. Ernest is in crisis. We better go help. No,
2: and Ernest ain't generally in crisis.
1: No, more probably I am more. Who do you You, think has more problems, me or you?
2: You, because (laughs) you've got no time for yourself.
1: Okay, here we go. I think this is getting old.
2: Okay, all right. All right, we're done. Thank you.
1: He's so annoying. (laughs) So society says these relationships aren't normal. They shouldn't happen. We're not going to make space for it. In fact, we're going to put freeways in between it. Um, MLK said, a beloved community involves this very thing. People from these different backgrounds coming together. And Jesus calls us to a level of oneness that's just absolutely profound. And you have to fight against the messages all around. I was in Rainbow a few years ago and I had four teenage guys with me, African American kids from my neighborhood, neighbors. And they um, were wearing the, the hoodies and the low slung jeans and the bling. And they kept trying to put things in the shopping cart and I kept taking them out of the shopping cart and saying, back up, back up. And so they ended up lined up behind me and then when I would put something in the shopping cart, they would rap about it. And I'm not gonna even try. I'm not Greg Boyd, I can't do it. And so they were walking behind me and doing what these guys do, and I put Cheerios in, and then they'd rap about Cheerios, and then i put Pop in, and they'd do a, a Pop rap and a little, a little Debbie rap and a Doritos wrap, and this was going on and on. And they are making quite a bit of noise, and I got to laughing so hard that I was crying, because it was just, I felt very honored, actually. Who else gets followed uh, by rappers in the grocery store? Um, <laughs> So we were just having fun, we were all cracking up, and after about 10 minutes of this, the manager of the grocery store, who's a white guy, came up to me and he said, do you need help? And I I just about went ballistic, it just sucked all the joy out of the room, because really what he was saying is, I know this can't be a good thing, You're, you're obviously not their mother, Uh, You can't be friends, so you're probably their parole officer or their caseworker, their social worker, or you're just a strange, happy white lady that they've decided to harass today. Those are the options, really. And I said to the dude, hey, guess what? These are my friends, and we're here together, and we're going to go home and eat together. Because I would like to live in a world where that kind of thing is normal. I would like to live in a world where four young men, amen, amen, amen. I would like for it to be normal that four young African-American men could be my friend and could eat dinner with me and where everybody would just think that was normal. Where the beloved community is playing out in public, where people could see it active. This is the world that I want to inhabit. And Ernest has really taught me that we just have to be present, we have to defy categories, we just have to hang out, and let's not define our relationship by a title, by a crisis, let's just be friends. Friends. The next thing I learned, amen, brother. The next thing I learned is that Ernest, and this one is so profound to me Ernest can teach my kids things um, that I never, ever could teach them. And so take a look at Ernest with my 17 year old daughter, Hadley, and you might want to take note that Ernest is sitting in his chair. Fear for me means something completely different than it means for you, because you've had a gun pointed at your head. Numerous times. That, that's not funny, but, um, and so just me thinking about what I'm scared of, which is just, can I get into this college? It just seems like nothing compared to what you've experienced.
2: You're gonna stress yourself. You're gonna get old like somebody we know. <laughs> <laughs> your mother. You'll get old like your mother real quick.
1: You're always there, you know. Like when we're on vacation, you drive by the house. Yeah. And I, I don't know. Even when we don't ask you to, you always just drive by the house.
2: This is my friend's house. I don't want nobody breaking <laughs> into my friend's house. <laughs> I
1: don't drive by your house all the time, though.
2: And you don't know how to drive that well.
1: Yes, I do. Uh, okay. <laughs> Every corner we went, you had something to say. You had a story to tell about when you were little or younger, you worked at this place, or when. Oh, yeah. And you told us, I was sitting at that corner with my dog. You know, like 80 years ago. 80
2: years ago. (laughs) Cold-blooded. 80 years ago. Hadley, you (laughs) cold-blooded.
1: Well, this is where it really hits close to home because my job in society is protect my 17-year-old daughter from people like Ernest. That's one of the things that I'm supposed to do. Now, I might let her hear Ernest's testimony. I might let her visit Ernest or someone like Ernest in jail. But can they be friends? Can we allow them to forge a relationship where they joke around, where Ernest speaks into her life, where Ernest is constantly telling her to quit biting her nails? Are you seeing a theme? He's so annoying. He's just always hounding us on these things. And this is what my daughter receives. Is she, she hears from someone who is so different from her. She experiences his life. I said to her this week, how do you think your life would be different if you didn't know Ernest? And she said, you know, it's, it's hard to put into words, but I know that I see the world um, through Ernest's eyes in addition to my own. And I would add to that that she sees that the world that looks back at her and the world that looks back at Ernest are two completely different worlds. Because the world says to my daughter, you can make it. You can be a success. You have everything you need. Rise up. And the world oftentimes says to Ernest, you are an ex-con. You are untrustworthy. You have failed. Um, We'll have none of that. And so we've lived in a world where these two people shouldn't intersect. And I can say that both of my kids are just completely different people because they've had this opportunity. They see the world completely different and there's nowhere to buy this kind of learning. It comes through the hard work of relationship. It comes with offering trust. It comes with trusting Jesus. It comes with stepping out. We need to do this. We need to model something different. I am proud to say that Ernest takes my daughter to the store, that Ernest is going to a city council meeting with her this week as part of her homework, that Ernest eats at her house, that Ernest speaks into her life. This is the beloved community and it looks different than the world around us. The next thing I learned is that when God's people act like God's people, it can really make the ultimate difference. This is Ernest talking about his church experience.
2: You know, I'd see people go to church on Sunday because I would go and I'd see them and then you go in and they stand and they sing and then they sit down and and then they preach and then they pass the pot the plate collect the money then it's all over and then he stands at the door and greets you when you leave and and then Monday you see somebody and they look at you down the nose at you like like who's that Ew, that's that guy from church Ew. you know they grab your purse when you walk past them. I went to this church. It's called the Lift, It's a, a comfortable place, you know. I met some good friends, Pastor Sandra, her family, uh, a lot of people in the church, and they've been—they've been, they've helped me out with a car. They've—they've they've been there for me. They, you know, they kept me out of trouble, basically because I. I, I, everywhere I go, I see one of them, so I know if I get out of line, somebody going to see me, so I better be cool. So, <laughs> so they kept me in line, <laughs> believe me, if they weren't there, I'd still no telling. No telling where I'd be.
1: Well. What if Ernest isn't just being generous and nice, but he's really telling the truth and saying there was something in our community that's helped him stay in line, as he says. And what if he hadn't hooked up with a community of God's people who basically stalk him around the east side and keep an eye on him? And what if he didn't have this accountability? And what if he'd fallen back into old patterns? There's a lot at stake he called me a few years ago when the, the big uh, 84 Buick was dying, and he, he said, I've never done this before, but I need to ask you a favor. I need to ask if you and Dave will loan me $250 because I've got to get this car fixed, um, and I'll pay you $50 a month for the next five months to pay, to pay you back. And Dave and I said, well, of course we'll do that. And then we got a money order every month on the first of the month for five months. So I learned what they looked like. And... Um, he said to me, You know, I, I usually would hustle when I need to solve a problem like this. And again, unclear on what hustling is. But he said, I didn't want to end up in, in jail. And for the first time, I have a community of friends who would just say, Hey, you got a problem? We're, we're with you in it. And it made the difference that day. And it makes a difference in the other direction as well because Ernest has had a huge sa- shaping influence on our community. Uh, A few years ago, his daughter, Jamila, who lives in another state and who we had never met, was going to have open heart surgery. And so we had prayed for her uh, at the lift on Saturday nights, and on a Tuesday, she was going to have her surgery. So Saturday night, we prayed for her. Ernest was nervous. He wasn't going to be able to be there. And then the next day, my husband went in the hospital, and then it was Christmas time, so all kinds of stuff was going on, and Tuesday came and went, and nobody called Ernest. And so... Uh, he didn't show up at our meeting on Saturday, and so a couple of us tracked him down, and we said, hey, what happened to you? Because the only time Ernest missed is for the jazz festival, and there ain't no jazz festival in December. So we said, what's up? And he said, you guys are a bunch of hypocrites, and I ain't coming back. I don't have time for people like that. I've seen enough of that, and you said you cared, and you obviously didn't because nobody called me, and so I'm done with you. And we said, you know what? You're absolutely right. You... We're wronged, and we were not good friends to you in this, and we are sorry for that, and you should feel hurt. But I said, I want to invite you to really help shape our community, to help people understand what this feels like. And so will you think about coming back next Saturday and telling everybody what you just told us and telling how bad it is and how how you felt, and let's just see what happened. So he thought about it a little bit, and he said he would. So he showed up the next Saturday, and he told um, how he felt. And the community affirmed him and the community said, will you forgive us for being such terrible friends to you? And he did. And what that really taught our community is if we're going to be in this for real, if we're not going to be hypocrites, if we're not going to say one thing and do another, then we have to be in this seven days a week. We're not in this Saturdays when we get together as a community. We're in this all the time. And he was the voice into our community who was willing to share his anger and his sadness with us and help us grow. And so, again, there's the reciprocity. We help him when he's having a car problem. He helps us when we're being losers. Uh, It's not an even exchange. What if the only reason that God wanted my family and me to move on to the east side was so that we could meet Ernest and he could speak into our lives about what's important? He could be the voice of Jesus to us and we could um, be the voice of Jesus to him. And we could learn from one one another. We could begin to form a community that looks different than what the world's used to. And I usually say to myself when I think about this, that's enough. Even if nothing else was to happen from our moving in, just meeting Ernest and having that voice in our lives was enough to make the change. So the question is whether this vision of a beloved community is just me saying, hey, how about you trade in your social construction, the one that you've been raised in and the one that you're used to. Trade that in for this other social construction. So instead of embracing this set of values and this view of time and this lifestyle, embrace this other one where you reach across the great divide, where you become a reconciler, where you get shaped by people who are different from you. Am I just asking you to trade in what's behind door number one with what's behind door number two? Because if that's all it is, then who cares, pick a door. But I really believe that because of Jesus' prayer in John 17, where he prayed for a kind of oneness that transcended anything that humans are normally capable of, where he called us to be in relationship like the Trinity is in relationship, I don't think it's just a social construction. I think it's core to what it means to be fully human and to be fully whole, is to reach deeply into the lives of others who are different from us and become one. It's rooted in the Trinity. Well, the final thing that I learned from Ernest is what success is really all about.
2: I can say to this day, you know, oh, I'm successful. I and people measure success by the things they accumulated. And it was said to me one time, how are you successful? You ain't nothing but an ex-drug addict, ex-convict. I said, yeah, I'm an ex-convict, ex-drug addict, got a roof over my head, I don't have the police chasing me, I ain't strung out on nothing, got a job, got friends, I'm successful.
1: friend, my 80-year-old friend, Ernest. (laughs) Oh, he's got a microphone now. I probably better be nice.
0: Thank
1: you. Um, A a month ago, we were at the Lyft, and we were doing testimonies, and Ernest got up and shared the shortest testimony ever at the Lyft, and so I asked him if he'd share that testimony with you today. What did you say?
2: Uh, Today is the longest I've ever been free.
1: So, we testimony, because I met Ernest not long after he became free for the last time, and I would really say, I thought about it after he said that, and I thought, you know, this is the longest I've been free, that there's things that I've learned through entering into this community that have freed me up from a lot of baggage that I was carrying. And so it's a different kind of freedom, but I would say that we're both going on a a lot of years now of of learning to be free in new ways. So the takeaway... (laughs) You cannot flirt with people while you're standing My up.
0: <laughs>
1: <That's strange. laughs> the takeaway today is not for everyone to go and find their earnest. And really, there probably aren't any other earnest, right? You're sort of a unique individual. It's just the one the one in a million. But. We're going to be talking about this topic for now another couple of months, and we're really trying to drive it home to say this is a journey that we're on together. Journeys are not overnight things. Journeys aren't quick solutions. Um, big questions like this don't have easy answers. And so the invitation today is to say, what are the social constructions that I have been living under that I should maybe trade in for what it means to be fully human? What are the steps that I can at least start praying about and thinking about that would take me out of my comfort zone? The beloved community is not something that's only formed in one certain location. The beloved community is not just over at the east side of St. Paul. The beloved community is something that we're all called to, and it's going to look as unique for all of us as we are unique from one another. And so you might find your version of Ernest... Um, You might find a happy white lady, you don't know, but God is going to call you on this journey. And so the commitment is for us together today as individuals, as families, and as groups to say to ourselves, am I willing to start on the journey? Am I willing to listen to Jesus? Am I willing to be patient with the journey and see how God changes me through it? That's the question. Let's pray together. God, I pray that we would enter in. And I thank you that what my brother Ernest has brought to us today, I thank you what he's brought to me and to my kids, and thank you that he is a minister of the gospel, that you have called him, that you have gifted him, that you have chosen him, and I pray blessing on his driving around the east side and hearing your voice and answering the call. And I pray for all of us, uh, because if there's people like me, they want a quick fix, and they want tomorrow to be the beloved community, and I pray that you would give us the vision, that you would give us the patience, that you would light one step at a time as we move together into a beloved community that's... Um, grounded in the love of Christ and empowered by the Spirit. And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right. Thanks. Come forward for prayer.
0: Take this message to my brother.